Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society here at King's College London. My name is Dr. Stephen Klein and I'm a lecturer in political theory here at the Department of Political Economy and we're very pleased to welcome Ian Shapiro to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Great, uh, thank you for being here. So uh, Ian Shapiro is the Sterling Professor of Political Science at Yale University. He's written widely and influentially on democracy, justice, and the methods of social inquiry. Uh, and his latest work concerns the relationship between democracy and the distribution of income and wealth. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. So um, great. I wanted to begin with um, your 2018 book, actually, on responsible parties, How to Save Democracy from Itself, uh, which you co-authored with Francis McCall Rosenbluth. And this book is a spirited defense of the importance of parties for democracy. And so before we get into some of my questions about your argument, um, I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about why you think political parties are so vital for democracy, as well as why you think their value tends to be overlooked or um, you could say uh, neglected in both popular and popular debates around democracy. Sure. Um, so political parties are important in democracies for two principal reasons. One is that they are the basic instruments of uh, democratic governance, and they're also the instruments of accountability of politicians to voters. And, uh, you know, uh, Schatzneider famously said in the 1950s that the, the condition of a democracy should be read off from the condition of the political parties. Um, of course, in recent years, we've seen a huge move toward um, trying to have democracy without parties or to weaken parties or to replace them with various forms of direct democracy. But in our judgment that that, that is um, um, basically deleterious to democratic accountability and to effective democratic, democratic governance. I can just give you one in, in example, if you like, to make the point. So um, if you ask American voters, would you like a tax cut, any tax cut, um, even getting rid of the estate tax, which is a tax on estates of more than $20 million that almost nobody pays, the most progressive tax in the US tax code, a majority of voters will say yes. Um, if you say to them, would you like a tax cut if getting rid of that tax also means getting rid of prescri free prescription drug benefits for senior citizens, say, then they'll say no. So what's going on there is that in the second instance, voters are discounting their preference for the tax cut with their preference for keeping the free prescription drugs. So that's what parties do. They bundle issues together into platforms, discounting everything they propose by everything else they propose in ways that they hope will appeal to wide numbers of voters, as you know, broadest possible number of voters. And uh, if they get it right, they win. If they get it wrong, they lose. So in a, in a two-party system, it's winner-take-all politics, so lose-or-lose-all politics. So you have to try and do that bundling. Um, in a way that'll appeal to a lot of voters. 
if you allow lots of direct democracy, as we had starting with the anti-tax movement here in 1978, where in California, there was something called um, Proposition 13, which limited property taxes to 1% of the assessed value of property. So the whole anti-tax crowd came out and voted for that. Um, and that passed by two thirds, but of course they weren't doing the sort of discounting I was just talking about. So they weren't thinking about the implications of that for the costs of local government, for education, for all sorts of things that they, if they were forced to confront the costs of what they were doing, uh, they would think about it differently. And so that was the beginning of the anti-tax movement. Um, greatly weakens parties when you when intense voters with an intense preference can pull out something like that and, and enact it. And um, you know, I think a similar story could be told about Brexit in the UK. And so what what Although it looks more democratic, you say, well, you know, we'll vote issue by issue. We have internet, we can have, you know, um, active citizen participation. Um, in fact, it's an illusion because what it really does is make it possible for powerful interests to essentially hijack the political party process and get what they want. I, um, I have a follow up question about that, but I wanted to also maybe just so people know the full argument ask you about something else, which is, so, you know, this is a question of sort of democracy bypassing parties altogether. But another issue you deal with in the book is debates about democratizing political parties themselves. So a lot of people say, look, political parties are necessary evils, um, or, you know, they have these positive effects, but they can also lead to kind of capture by elites within the party. And so what we yeah. need is kind of good democracy within the parties. And you also are in the book are very skeptical of that. So, um, before I get into some more critical or some questions, maybe you could also just say a little bit about your worry about democratizing political parties themselves. Right, so competition is the lifeblood of democracy, but we argue that inter-party competition is good and intra-party competition is bad. And I'll, I'll give you uh, two examples of the, of the problems that get generated when you have a lot of intra-party competition. And they both come down to the, the fact that um, participants in intra-party competition tend to be on the fringes of the parties. In the US, this plays out in primary elections. So you have um, you know, the party members or activists vote heavily in primary elections, but most voters don't vote in primary elections. So the, the primaries are essentially what happens is they pull candidates towards extremes of the parties. Um, in the US, this has been made much worse in recent decades because we've got more and more safe seats. So in, in congressional primaries, more and more and more of the, the elections, the primary is the only election that matters because the seat is safe for the party. So once the primary is over and maybe, you know, and then say, um, uh, you get an 11 or 15% turnout, um, heavily dominated by people on the extremes of the parties. And it happens at the presidential level too. Most people don't know this, but Trump, for example, was selected in 2016 
by uh, 5% of the US electorate in very low turnout primaries. You saw a, an example of this in, in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn, where you know, they went to direct election of the leadership in the Labour Party. Uh, he, he, therefore, he, again, was the members who were way to the left of the median vote in the Labour Party, never mind the median British voter. Um, the parliamentary Labour Party found they couldn't work with him and, you know, had a, what was it, 162 to um, 40 vote of no confidence in him. Three months later, he was re-elected uh, by the membership, uh, I think with 62%. And so again, you get what looks like a democratic outcome, but in fact, what it, what it, it enables is, um, takeovers of the parties by members on their extremes. And that uh, limits accountability, limits effectiveness. It makes it very difficult for parties to govern. We argue that's a lot of the explanation for gridlock in the US. And so intra-party democracy sounds good until you drill down and think about, well, you know, who, who, who actually participates in intra-party democracy? And how does that affect the capacity of parties to actually govern when they win elections? Good. I mean, this raises, I think, a really interesting puzzle, which you don't entirely address in the book, which is sort of, if this is so harmful to parties, why do they do it? It seems like there's an interesting question of sort of why, why are, you know, so you go back to the, you know, the McGovern Commission and the, uh, and the reforms in the Democratic Party after the 68, you know, there's all these moments, it seems like, where parties, in response to some internal conflict, bring in these reforms. Do you have a kind of a, a view as to why parties do this seemingly irrational, you know, from the perspective of your argument, a kind of irrational uh, thing? Well, um, you know, parties are unusual organizational forms in that nobody owns them. Um, you know, people, People often analogize parties to firms, and Schumpeter famously did that. Um, you know, parties are like firms, politicians are like you know profits, profit-seeking um, entrepreneurs, and you know consumers are like voters, and so on. And it, it, people often point out it's a strained analogy, but one of the ways in which it is very strained is that there's no equivalent of shareholders in parties. Um, nobody owns them, they're unowned entities, and that makes them, that makes the governance of them inherently contentious. Um, so you often have a lot of fights about governance. And our argument is that um, starting in the 1970s, as many of the older democracies headed into very difficult economic times, um, because you know we had stagflation, we had the oil shocks, we had the aging, um, the 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 beginning of the uh, age of the baby boomers um, starting to put more pressure on the fiscal structure of these systems as you had more and more uh, working age voters supporting. Uh, fewer and fewer working age voters supporting more and more retired voters. So there were a lot of reasons that, that these economies were doing less well, growth was slowing, and people tend to blame the political system. You know, Anthony King uh, 
wrote a brilliant book about this on, in, the, in the UK called The British Constitution, where he pointed out that some of the big reforms to the British system started in the 70s for exactly these reasons. It was a very tough economic decade. People started blaming the political system. It was almost, you know, like bloodletting, we argue. It was fixing what wasn't broken. But as, as governments delivered less well, people, people said, oh, well, the, you know, there must be something wrong with the parties. And the US, it was all about Vietnam, the angry, uh, you know, uh, the angry generation uh, uh, in the wake of the 1968 Democratic Convention, um, when the anti-war candidate lost, um, even though, uh, he, you know, Hubert Humphrey was picked as the candidate, even though the party members didn't want him. And so that's, so you, what tends to happen is you get these, ref, these sort of decentralizing reforms. Once they're there, they're extremely difficult to undo because people perceive them as more democratic. And so actually, even though they make the parties even more dysfunctional, um, when that happens, you get demands for even more decentralization. Um, and so sort of pushing in exactly the wrong direction because unless you have strong parties, they're not able to put together coherent programs and implement them. Yeah, and this, I mean, I, so I, it sounds very compelling. And I think the one part of the decline that I'm interested in, and one thing that I think is an interesting part of the story is also the decline of some of the traditional sources of mobilization for political parties. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, I often think of political, or one thing I've often thought about in these debates is that there's a kind of, there are two different dimensions to political parties. So one is the mobilize, the coordination function, which is what you really emphasize. So kind of bundling issues together, building those compromises, integrating various interest groups, but parties also exist to get people to vote yeah. and to mobilize the, their constituencies. And it seems, you know, if you look at the debate in the last two primaries in the Democratic Party in the UK, it seems like one of the big debates is sort of how do you balance this coordination function of trying to find issues that appeal to the median voter with also ensuring that the kind of core constituencies of the party reliably vote. And it seems like one of the real big stories has been the kind of gradual decline of some of these reliable sources of political support, especially for more social democratic and left-wing parties. So how do you think about that sort of aspect or that tension? Like, could it be part of what political parties are trying to do when they bring in these reforms is also find ways of activating these voters who have, because of the decline of unions and a lot of these traditional kind of sources of mobilization, they need to figure out how to remobilize some of their constituencies. So I think you've absolutely nailed the problem. And you know, the the the, the biggest piece of it is the, the the declining power of trade unions, which is in the US has gone on since the 1950s in almost every uh, European democracy and the UK has gone on since the 1970s and 80s. And you know they were the unions were a major source of mobilization for voters to vote for center left parties, uh, you know, and that is to some extent uh, parties are looking for substitutes for that. By the way, this also plays out. And we haven't talked about multi-party systems at all. Um, you know, people 
particularly on the left, used to favor multi-party systems because they seem more redistributive and more responsive to labor, to the interests of labor than uh, two-party systems. And that used to be true. I, I, you know, one of the things we argue and we've in, we've been exploring in subsequent research subsequent to that book is it's, it seems like it's no longer true because you've also had declining unions in all the European systems mm -hmm. and declining power of the left uh, for that reason. And so, you know, center left parties, social democratic parties that used to come in first or second, whether it's in Germany or Holland or Israel or you name it, now come in fourth or fifth. Um, and so that, that greatly weakens the, the power of left of center parties. And the main story in the European systems now is fragmentation uh, of the left, which is also um, it produced alienated voters there. They, they respond differently than in two party systems. But uh, you know, that's a big part of the story about the, you know, the emergence for alternative for Deutschland or in Holland or in Austria and all of these countries of far right populist parties. So what shows up in the US in, with primary voters in the Republican party shows up with these far right parties. So it, it, it's a huge problem in all of these systems that the, the traditional source of mobilizations for parties on the left has largely disintegrated. Um, um, but we argue that, you know, further weakening parties uh, is not the solution to that problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. And this gets a little bit of the political economy stuff, which you've been thinking about as well. But before I have one more, I have a, another question about the political yeah. parties things. I think it's such an interesting debate. And um, I wanted to ask, you know, so it seems like there, so the book is a defense of parties. And so you obviously are trying to push back against a lot of skepticism towards political parties. And so you, as you already said, you defend sort of large scale catch-all political parties. I mean, your ideal, it seems to me, is kind of the Westminster British model when it works well, kind of these large catch-all parties who can come into power and govern on their own. You also say some interesting thing about coalition systems and multi-party systems and the value of kind of people knowing beforehand what the coalition is gonna look like. Um, but there's a, there's a worry, and this is about, about political parties in general, that I feel like doesn't come through in the book. And it's the worry I associate most with Peter Meyer's work and his book, Ruling the Void, which is that when you have that sort of system, parties also have a very large incentive to take controversial or particularly challenging issues off the political agenda. And so one argument, for example, about Brexit is that for a long time, there's been a kind of simmering tension around the UK's and you know, role in the European Union. And both parties have worked very, very hard to take that issue, that issue off the table. And similarly, Meyer argues this a similar phenomenon in European party systems, where the kind of grand coalition politics, there's a lot of work to take certain issues off the table because the parties have a very strong incentive to sort of figure out what's going to keep them in power and what's going to keep them in power is often. And so I I think like part of I think Meyer's argument is that this can also create really challenging dynamics for these political parties because the more say there's a strong consensus by party consensus around something like the European Union, the easier it is for these smaller parties to exploit the openings that are created. Whereas if you had more full-fledged conflict 
between parties where the, and so even more polarization that would reduce this um, tendency of people to become disaffected. And you know, when you see, you know, you see the same thing in the US, I think. I think one thing I often think about with the Trump, so Trump clearly was a case of, you know, political capture of a party by its base. Um, but one thing I always thought was very interesting, you go back to 2008, Obama promised to renegotiate NAFTA. And so there was a way in which the free trade consensus, consensus in the US, there was a kind of bipartisan consensus that was in some ways forged over a lot of tension. And so that created an opportunity for a demagogue to exploit that feeling that people, so what do you say to that word? That the, the kind of, so the pathologies of too much democracy are fragmentation, but the pathologies of parties are gonna be a sort of incentive to take these issues off the table as much as possible, which can then create openings for populists or other people to exploit that sort of depoliticization. Well, I think that's partly right, but partly misguided. The part that's right, uh, just to start with your example, it was, a, it was a mistake of Obama not to renegotiate NAFTA. It was also a mistake of Obama to ignore um, the people in the Democratic base who were who were deeply damaged by the aftermath of the financial crisis and spend all so many chips bailing out the banks and, and not attending to the 20 plus million people who'd lost their homes and so on. And I think that that was a big strategic failure of the Obama administration that, that set up uh, 2016. But to, I wanna talk about the US all the time. Let's talk about the UK and Brexit, where you, which you also brought up, because I think it, it illustrates where this, this logic runs out. So um, people forget this, but in the 1980s, the Tories were pro-Europe and Margaret Thatcher was pro-European, pro-Europe. Um, but there were plenty of, um, there was still plenty of Euroscepticism in the Conservative Party and she had you know, what you might think of a, of Brexit people before Brexit who were saying, you know, British workers are getting screwed, this is really bad. And she, how did she respond to it? If you look at what she did, ran on in 1983, it was essentially was gonna renegotiate the deal with Europe, uh, which she did. And that's where the 40 billion pound rebate came from. She ran, she won on that. She, she ran on that, she did it, she won, she did it. And then uh, that took the, a lot of the wind out of the sails of the Brexiteers. So she essentially, to use the jargon of economists, she, she priced in their concerns to the way in which she was doing the bundling that I was talking about at the right at the beginning of our conversation. And essentially, um, you know, that, that uh, kept the party together, but it also, it took account of, of some of the concerns of those people and it didn't stop her, it didn't stop the Tories, you know, winning multiple elections after that. Um, so that's the, it, it's not that, that the party took the Euroskeptics concerns off the table, it, they incorporated them, but they said then they're not the only issue that matters. And so, yes, this is, we need to, we need to re redo this deal so that it's better for Britain. Now, if you look at uh, Brexit itself, and you know, 
fast forward to the 2000s, um, you know, one of the arguments for the referendum was both the parties are overwhelmingly pro-Europe pro um, and so pro-Remain. And so what about the people who don't want to be in Europe? They have no party to vote for, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's the way the issue was framed. But of course, if you have a referendum, you, you're engaging in the unbundling that we talked about at the beginning, right? Because when you, when you say, you know, do you want to leave Europe? Um, people are saying, well, do, you know, do I want nasty European bureaucrats doing, you know, um, uh, messing around with my life? Or do I want Polish plumbers taking jobs, mm -hmm. whatever it is? And they don't, they're not forced to discount um, their preference for less control from Europe by their other preferences. And so, you know, it's, it's it, the telling statistics are not, uh, that not only in 2015 did Parliament elect overwhelmingly um, pro-European parties, but so they did in 2017, So right? Um, so instead of, you know, it's the wrong, to say, well, sh where did the Brexit voters go? That's the wrong question to ask. The question to ask is, well, why is it that uh, both parties are electing to parliament delegations that are pro-European? And the answer was that most um, MPs in both parties knew that, you know, half of Britain's trade was with Europe, that this wasn't gonna be good for most of their mm -hmm. constituents. And when they bundled it, um, they came out somewhere else. Then I think what happened was because of the weakening in the parties, you had entryism and all that. And so essentially, you know, Farage and the Brexiteers were able to hijack uh, the Tory parties pretty much in the sort of way that the that the hijacking occurred in the US of the Republican Party. Um, and again, it was, you know, it was a failure of the Tories to, to, um, to behave the way Thatcher had behaved in, 19, in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, Cameron attempt to renegotiate the, the, the deal with Europe before the referendum was was very was pathetic and so his bluff got called but i th i think that another way just to drive home the point is i thought it was the most revealing um thing that happened it during theresa may's um leadership was not only could she not get parliament to approve um the deal she you know, her Brexit deal. She couldn't get them to approve any alternative to it. And she couldn't get them to uh, even to approve asking for more time. And so, you know, that just underscores the artificiality of the, the choice because in the referendum, you know, it included right-wing Tories who want, what do they want? They want Singapore on the Thames and, and left-wing people from the Labour Party, what do they want? They want socialism in one country. So there's no agreement on, on what they want as an alternative to being in Europe. And so this is what happens 
if you create a completely artificial choice and frame it in this way for voters, it's not actually a coherent, you know, they're not choosing between two, two even intelligible alternatives because mm -hmm. the, the, you know, so I think that that's, that is the cost of unbundling issues. It's really interesting because, so, you know, I, I'm probably slightly more sympathetic to referendums than you because there's an interesting, I think, democratic theory puzzle that comes in. So if it's a basic constitutional issue, what other mechanism is there for kind of, say, altering the base? So for example, so I'm actually from Vancouver, Canada originally, and we've had a series of referendums on electoral reform, um, which you're probably familiar with coming out of the BC Citizens Assembly, which a lot of political scientists were heavily involved in. You know, and I think you see similar pathologies there but on the other hand, it seems like in the same way, there might not be alternatives to political parties in some circumstances, when you're dealing with kind of these more basic constitutional questions, I wonder if you think there could be a way that a kind of better designed referendum could have served better, say a two-stage referendum. Because um, it's also worth knowing that there was a referendum for the UK to join the European Union. And so there is a kind of, you could say precedent that if it's a question that has to do with the basic constitutional structure of the UK, which membership in the European Union is a question of basic constitutional structure. It's not a policy like healthcare where you can sort of adjust it up or down. I mean, it's about, do you accept the supremacy of European law? Do you accept the direct effect of that law? I mean, these are kind of very basic questions. I think, you know, this is where things get puzzling because how do you, how do you resolve those constitutional issues through political parties that have to operate within a constituted political system? Well, I, so I disagree with that. I mean, first of all, again, it's, it was a completely artificial choice, the supremacy of European law, because now Britain is gonna trade with Europe governed by laws that they were governed by before. It's just, they're not gonna have a say in making them that they used to have. So actually in a worse position, but go back. You, you mentioned the, the, the First, the 1975 referendum, I, I think it's a, a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. Britain had never had a referendum before then, ever, at the national level. Why did Harold Wilson call that referendum? You know, they, Britain had joined the common market a few years earlier under Heath without a, a referendum. He, Heath had been the big pro-European. And in those days, it was labor who was more Euroskeptical, mainly because there were, um, at that time, weaker protections for labor in Europe than they were in the UK. That's why the Tories wanted it. They thought it would force you know, more competitive economics onto the British economy and that that would be good for labor. And that's exactly why the left wing of the Labour Party didn't want to be in Europe. You know, now it's all flipped, but um, that's, What's the story then? And what did Wilson didn't want to have that fight in the Labour Party, and so he thought, how do I take this fight off the table? Um, we'll hold a referendum, and he held a referendum, and two thirds voted to remain. And he's and he, you know he he crowed afterwards that you know this has solved this issue forever. And first of all, it. As we know, it didn't solve the issue forever. Secondly, it didn't even it didn't even stop the fragmentation of the Labour Party over this issue. You know, um, because you know, five years later, um, when when Foot and Ben uh, were, you know, ascendant, 
because of the internal democracy, um, they said, well, we're gonna leave Europe without another referendum. And that produced a huge fight, which led Shirley Williams and others to storm out and create the Social yeah. Democratic Party. Yeah. So, you know, Wilson didn't even achieve his goal of um, avoiding having this fight within the Labour Party, which, you know, a much smarter move would have been to uh, do the mirror image of what Thatcher would do in the next decade. A much smarter move would have been for him to, you know, gra grasp the issue and say, well, you know, we want better protections for labor in the European Union. And they would have become the, the vanguard for spearheading the rewriting of the social chapter and, you know, things that happen anyway later, you know, actually. Yeah. Uh, because of pressure from left of center parties within European countries, yeah. France and um, Italy. Yeah. So you know, it. I think it was a it was a disastrous decision by um, Harold Wilson to just sort of duck that issue rather than see, uh, you know, the better way would have been to to do what I just said, actually resolve it politically rather than. Yeah, on that, that there was a big constituency of the Labour Party that was angry uh, about Europe because they saw it as threatening protections for workers and go and renegotiate that. Great. Yeah. And actually, this brings us back to the thing you said earlier that this kind of early 70s moment is such a crucial turning point. Um, and, you know, one thing you talked about in your lecture here at the center. Um, and that is the theme of your new book, is a lot of these changes in the party system are being driven by larger structural changes in the political economy of advanced capitalist societies. Um, so you have another book that just came out this year, uh, The Wolf yeah. at the Door, The Menace of Economic Insecurity and How to Fight It, uh, which is co-authored with Michael uh, Grates. And so I also wanna make sure we talk about this other facet of what you've been working on, which is to situate yeah. these political changes within a larger story about the changing structure of political economy. So you could say, you already mentioned this a little bit, but say a little bit more sort of about how these two, the arguments of the two books connect with each other. Um, the, the basic fact that is the most consequential fact of our time, I think is the disappearance of long-term employment security for vast majorities of workers in the, all over the world, but in the older democracies, since that's what we're talking about. So the, the, the era when you finish your education, whether high school or university as well, and then worked at a job for 30 years and then retired. That's just gone. People entering the labor market now it's, should expect to change jobs 12 to 15 times. Um, and the jobs that used to be going to trade are now going to technology. All this is being accelerated by COVID because the technology is getting so much better. But you know, the, the McDonald's in which um, there used to be 20 people working and then now six people working, five years from now, there'll be one person watching a robot make hamburgers. And it's not just at the bottom end of the um, income distribution, it is, more and more middle-class jobs are also going uh, to technology and that's only going to accelerate. Um, so they, that, uh, you know, David Altour and others have argued this doesn't mean jobs are going away. 
people have been saying that forever when you know new tech there'll be all kinds of new industries but this this means you've got to have a very different set of responses um, to unemployment to retraining to perpetual re-education of people who have lost their jobs than most of uh, these countries have uh, certainly the us and the uk um, although the us is worse um, and that's the that is the insecurity that uh, populists exploit, um, and that's the insecurity the Obama administration completely missed um, and didn't address at all. For example, you know, and if it happens with Biden, uh, we'll have another Trump. We'll, you know, there's no there's no question about it. Um, so. That that is the you know long-term employment insecurity is is the basic fact of our time, and it doesn't matter to people on the right side of the information revolution. I think this is why the elites didn't see it as a big problem. You know, if you if you're um, you know if you are you know you come out of university and you go through a few startups and then maybe you. Um, go to business school, those people are fine. They're building up, you know, um, nest eggs on 401ks, as we call them here. Um, so for them, changing jobs is just an opportunity to do some new and exciting thing and make more money. But they're, a, they're the minority. And for most people, they're basically bouncing down the socioeconomic um, scale. They're moving from more secure to less secure jobs. They're moving from jobs with good benefits to worse benefits to no benefits. They're moving from jobs that are of higher status to lower status. They are angry, they are afraid, they're disaffected. Those are the, that is the natural constituency now for parties of the left. Um, and if they don't address their needs, um, we're gonna get people pushing you know, one snake oil remedy after another, promising to bring up jobs that aren't gonna come back, uh, engaging in protectionism, which doesn't work. Um, so that my book with Michael Gratz is about uh, policies to address those problems. Um, we also argue, particularly in light of the collapse of labor as a political force, that it's it's very much in the interest of business to get behind these reforms because otherwise they're going to wind up. Uh, we're going to wind up with governments that are going to do a lot of things business doesn't like. They don't like protectionism. They don't like all the xenophobic politics. You know, they they don't uh, want a lot of these politics. But that's what we're going to get. And so, a big part of our argument is actually aimed at business elites to show, you know, just as business elites in the 30s uh, were much friendlier to the New Deal than many people realize in the, in the US. Business elites have to um, start to see it as in their interest to get behind policies to address that. Great, yeah, and I think, you know, this is something you mentioned earlier, but it's also why to kind of reiterate, you know, there's a twofold, there's the insecurity, and then there's also the decline of the institutions, not only that would, buffer some of that insecurity like labor unions who maybe could negotiate. So you look at countries that have historically stronger labor unions, they're often able to negotiate the implementation of technology to buffer some of the kind of technology shocks. But then you also, those are the 
you, you know, you have a lot of very disaffected people who it just seems to me um, uh, have a kind of justified or understandable, maybe not justified, understandable just distrust and distaste of politics in general. So there's a kind of anti-political sentiment that they have because they don't have these institutions that can connect them with political parties and make them feel like their voice is being represented in the political parties and is a kind of information conduit between the, these grassroots and the political elites. And I think this is where it all comes full circle where then you get the elites trying to figure out how to re-engage those people and they don't have a lot of tools because they don't have these other institutions to work with to engage with those, those grassroots people. And the parties are now so weak that it's very difficult for the elites to actually uh, deliver these kinds of policies. You know, yeah. Biden's probably going to be hamstrung because the, you know, the the odds of them actually getting the Senate are low. And even if they did, if they're, they're you know, plenty, there's a good number of, of centrist Democratic senators who are vulnerable to primary challenges in southern states so the, the you know enacting a kind of say the equivalent of what the Attlee government did in the 1940s um, aimed at our time or what Lyndon Johnson did in 1964 with the Great Society uh, today is much harder because the parties mm -hmm. are weaker um, yeah. and so it's a real institutional challenge uh, and as I said, you've got to think about the political economy. That's partly why my book with Gratz is aimed in significant part at business elites showing, you know, because unless some of the the players who, you know, can eat the, you know, the, what are the business elites been trying to do? They've been pushing for tax cuts, the 20, the Trump 2017 tax bill, just a massive giveaway to business. They don't see, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face, you know, would have been much better for them to get behind policies that would actually help uh, working class voters. Um, can I ask, so can you say a little bit more about what policies you're calling for specifically in the book? So what is your pitch to these business elites in terms of what they, what would be their kind of top priority in, you know, highest, let's talk their language, highest return on investment uh, programs that you and Gates well, or organization yeah. support? So what we argue is for something called universal adjustment insurance, which is universal adjustment assistance, which would replace the rather pathetic trade adjustment assistance laws that most of these countries have. And, uh, you know, they, these were enacted partly to get labor to support uh, free trade that you know, if you, workers who lost their jobs to trade would get assistance retraining. But they're, they're all pretty small, poorly administered, not very good programs. And so we argue for a much more ambitious um, system that would replace existing unemployment insurance with, um, which is particularly bad in the US because it's, it's 50 state systems with you know, um, ad hoc federal add-ons when, when the sort of situation like we're in now. But it's not very good in most European countries. Like Denmark has a much better system than most. But basically what's needed is um, uh, decoupling 
basic economic security from the vicissitudes of going in and out of jobs because um, that's not going away. And so you need, you need systems that, that allow people to uh, retrain and retool and move uh, and do whatever they need to go back into the workforce in some way that is going to be um, economically effective. And, and it's, it would be desirable for two reasons. One is what do they do instead? In the US, they go on to social security disability insurance. And once they're on that, they never come off. You know, and so somebody in their forties does that. They don't show up in the unemployment statistics, but that, that's about the most expensive way to support an unproductive worker. Um, and, you know, it's, it's look at it from the point of view of business elites, it's a complete drag on the system because they're contributing nothing and it's a net cost, you know, for the next 30 years. Uh, essentially, you're not, we're not calling it that, but we're basically just supporting people. Um, or, uh, and then the other reason is, this is a subsidy to business because a well-trained workforce and, a, and an adaptable workforce and a retrainable workforce, that, you know, that is a big subsidy to business. So, you know, the, the, the tax system should be subsidizing that and business should see it as in their interest to get behind that. And so that's, that's the, one thing and then we have other um, other policies you know like delinking and, and health insurance from employment for all the same reasons and we have a way of doing that that wouldn't run into the sticker shock of medicare for all basically we start with expanding it at the bottom because the younger people are much cheaper to insure and that would also build the political coalition forward over time um but basically um that's what has to be done because if you have millions and millions and millions of economically vulnerable and downwardly mobile people, um, they are going to be uh, afraid and desperate and desperate people do desperate things. And that's, you know, uh, that's what happened in the 1930s uh, in European systems. Um, that's how we got fascism in Italy in the 20s and in Germany in the 30s. Um, and, you know, that's where we could be heading again. If, if it's, we've been talking about the US and the UK, but the European systems are facing many of this, many similar problems. And we've been, again, since that book, been doing more research. Uh, you know, what shows up in the British and American systems as weaker parties in the European system shows up as fragmentation as the, you know, as say the social Democrats are, they're defending a shrinking, um, a shrinking labor aristocracy of employed workers. And so they're, you know, but the, what about the, the other workers? They're the ones who are hemorrhaging to the Linker, to the Greens, to the AFD, to all of these other parties um, and supporting uh, more and more, um, you know, anti-system anti candidates and parties. And so then nobody should think that they're immune to this or, or that, you know, if only we had multi-party systems, we would, we would be off this hook. Uh, they're facing all the same problems. Yeah, great. I mean, I think 
on, we should end on that note. It's an apocal set of questions. Um, I think um, it's uh, extremely impressive how you're integrating the political and the economic, which is one of the goals of you know, what we are up to here. Um, and so I just really appreciate hearing your thoughts and having the opportunity to talk to you about some of these big issues. So thanks, thanks for having me. Um, I enjoyed it. <laughs>